at our house this year, we have uh, what we call our thankfulness pumpkin. Now, it's just a regular pumpkin. There's nothing special about it. But Ashley and the kids, with a black Sharpie marker, have been writing on the outside of this pumpkin every time they think of something they're thankful for. And so it's covered all over um, on both sides with all kinds of uh, notes. Usually it's stuff the kids come up with, and some of them are quite profound. Some of them are, are very important things that we would praise God for. For instance, God and family and church. And then, of course, there's things on the pumpkin that are relatively simple, like the letter W and uh, silly putty and stuff like that. I was looking at our thankfulness pumpkin this week and realized that everything that's written on that pumpkin is, in one sense or another, a gift from God. Some big, some small, but all of them from his divine and gracious hand. That's that's why we say thank you. That's why we have a thankfulness pumpkin. It's because it comes from God. As it says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have? that you did not receive? The answer there is a clear nothing. There's nothing that we have that we did not receive. Every good thing is a gift from God. And yet, as you catalog your list of things, of God's gift, some of them deserve special attention, just like on our pumpkin. You know, some of those things are more significant than the letter W. Some gifts mean more. And this morning, I want us to consider that the greatest gift you could receive was given to you in Christ. And I'm talking here, of course, about the work of God in delivering us from sin and setting us free from the punishment that our sins deserve and giving us eternal life with God. Salvation. And for this, not only should we give thanks, we are obligated to give thanks. And that's the point that's made right here for us in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, but we are bound to give thanks to God. Now, this passage and this book of 2 Thessalonians is part of a a two-parter, if you will. There are two letters in the New Testament written to the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians and 2. Now, the first one is a pretty warm letter, very autobiographical. Paul is, is talking to this church that, frankly, he was quite worried that it was may not get off on the best of starts, and yet he is encouraged to hear their faith and growth and love for the Lord. But now in 2 Thessalonians, which is written soon after the first letter, is slightly different in tone. It's less warm. It's less autobiographical. It's a little bit more authoritative, if we could say it that way. It's it's an exhortation or, or almost, I hate to say it, but it's almost a rebuke. Not quite, but there was a lot of confusion in Thessalonica, particularly about the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ and those things. Now, Paul had tried to clear up some of that in his first letter, and apparently they were still listening to people who were throwing them into confusion, teaching them that the day of the Lord was upon them, that they were already in this tribulation period of great distress. And Paul writes to calm them to set them right. But there was also apparently some problems in the church with people who wouldn't work. And he writes to correct that as well. And so he's a little more direct, a little more to the point than he is in 1 Thessalonians. 
And as he clears this up, he talks in the Second Thessalonians chapter 2, giving them detail about this coming day of the Lord, and particularly this man of lawlessness. We know him typically as the Antichrist, this monstrous figure which will appear before the coming of Christ, before his return to this world, who will do great evil. He will deceive many, misleading them, claiming to be God himself. He will demand the worship of people, and many are going to be led astray and who will be condemned because they followed him. You might be thinking to yourself, well, this doesn't sound like a very good Thanksgiving message. You know, the Antichrist, people being deceived, uh, judgment. Well, verse 13 kind of transitions, but we need to keep the context in mind, and I'll refer to it several times as we go, because there's a reason it follows this whole man of lawlessness section. But you'll notice in verse 13, it shifts. In fact, he kind of picks up where he began at the beginning of the letter. At the beginning of 2 Thessalonians, he's praising God, thanking God always for them. Then he has this interlude where he explains, you know, here's what's going on. Here's what you need to understand so you're not misled. Then he, he kind of returns to, well, I'm bound to give thanks for you, to that theme of thanksgiving. And what does he thank God for? Mainly... It is for God's work in their lives, their salvation. Again, this is the greatest gift that any of us can receive. And Paul sees fit in this section to thank God for the Thessalonians, but particularly for God's work in them in saving them. And what could be a more glorious praise this morning than to thank God for what he's done for us in Christ? And by calling our minds back to God's grace, I think this passage gives us three ways to respond to God's salvation. As we think about it, we are first compelled to give thanks. We are compelled to give thanks. If you've been saved by the grace of God, then you ought to be a thankful person. Thanks is the natural language of the redeemed. And it's not just an option, it's a demand. St. Ambrose, who was a church father who discipled Augustine once said, no duty is more urgent than that of returning thanks. It is a duty for the believer. Look at verse 13 with me. He says, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Remember, he's just been talking about the multitudes in the last days who will be deceived by this great uh, enemy of the church. Now he says, but in contrast to those who are deceived, who are being led away, but I'm thankful for you because that's not your fate. You're not on the way to eternal destruction with the Antichrist. He says, you have a different fate awaiting you. I thank God for that. I'm obligated You notice how Paul says this, not just what he says. He says, we are bound to give thanks. Now, that word bound could also be translated ought, as in, we ought to give thanks for you. But I don't particularly like that translation, ought, because it implies, at least in English, something that you ought to do or should do, but you don't really want to do. Right? So, for instance, if I say, I ought to clean our garage, or I ought to fix my lawnmower, or I ought to pick up my laundry. 
it kind of implies that I know I should, but I'm not too excited about it. Uh, another example, we might be in prayer meeting, and I said, well, you know, we ought to p- pray for Dave or whoever. Again, what if I say I, we ought to pray for him? It sounds like, yeah, we should, but mm, not really feeling like praying for Dave right now. So ought kind of, kind of implies this wrestling within ourselves. Probably a better translation for this is we must give thanks. We are bound compelled to give thanks. The the word that's used here has an idea of a legal requirement. It's something you must do. You have an obligation. And for those who have experienced the grace of God, there's no other response than thanks, which makes sense. We're compelled. We're obligated to give thanks. Paul was. He says we give, we're obligated, we're bound to give thanks to God. So he is the object of this thanking. We we thank him always for you or concerning you. So they're they're thanking God for the Thessalonians. Well, what in particular? What did the Thessalonians do? Or or what quality of them are they thanking for? Well, it's really what God did in them. This is where he begins to talk about the blessings of salvation. James Denian, an old theologian, once stated that this passage is a system of theology in miniature. If you look at verses 13 and 14, this is like the whole doctrine of salvation crammed into just two verses. It's pretty remarkable. It goes from God's plans and intentions all the way at the beginning of time, all the way through to your being glorified with Jesus forever. The whole scope of salvation, beginning to end, is described here. Let's consider some of the blessings that should bind us to give thanks. First, we give thanks because we are loved. We are loved. Notice this in verse 13. It says, we're bound to give thanks to God for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord. Now, again, that, that almost seems like a throwaway line. You know, you could, you could take that expression out and the sentence would still make sense. You know, we're bound to give thanks because God from the beginning. But it's not a throwaway line. Brethren, beloved by God. What a great reason. And, and what greater reason can we conceive of than to give thanks today than God has set his love on us? You know, a lot of people at Thanksgiving this year are going to sit around the table And if they talk about what they're thankful for at all, they might say something, well, I'm thankful for the love of my family, thankful for my spouse, I'm thankful for um, the the friends that I have and the love that we share. What a blessing it is to be loved, but how much more to be loved by the Father, by God Almighty. He says, you are ones who are loved, beloved of the Lord. What a designation, what an identity. These people are loved by Christ, by God himself. We are those beloved brethren. If you've trusted in Christ, if he is your savior, you are brethren beloved of the Lord. The plan of salvation from its very inception springs from God's love for humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave. Right? Love is the starting point. And the cross is the the full manifestation of God's love. God's love is shown to us in giving his son for us. It says in 1 John, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. 
We are loved. Isn't that a reason to be thankful? Not only that, the Bible also says we are chosen. Continue on in verse 13. He says, Brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. He chose you. You notice he says uh, the word because here. He's explaining the, the thankfulness that he's introduced already. So we're thanking God, and here's why. Here's the because. Because God from the beginning chose you. Now this text reminds us that we were chosen from the beginning. In other words, God is the one who chose us. Ephesians 1.4 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is a biblical truth that God has chosen us in Christ. And it also springs up this old debate that comes up from time to time between Calvinism and Arminianism. Uh, from our standpoint here on earth, it looks to us like at a point in time in my life, I chose to follow Christ. I decided that I was going to make him my savior, receive him, whatever language you want to use. And so it seems like the choice was mine. And yet there are scriptures which would indicate that God is the one who did the choosing to begin with. So the question between these two systems is sort of, well, who, who initiated? Who did the choosing here and so on? And I don't mean to unravel the whole thing this morning. But it does bring up some interesting questions. Does God's sovereign control infringe upon our human will? Uh, and how do we put all these pieces together? Well, let me say, I think the fact that God chose us does not mean that we are robots, that we are just sort of, uh, we, we don't even make any choices at all. We're just kind of uh, automated. I don't think that's true. But I do think that in the scriptures, the, the pattern here is that God chose us first. And, and there is a bit of mystery involved here. But let me, let me just, for sake of illustration, think about this. Imagine someday... You get up, you decide you're going out somewhere, you climb in the car, you're driving maybe a couple miles under the speed limit for a change. Um, as you're going, you, you realize, oh, wait, I left my coffee at home. I'm going to pull into this gas station, get a cup of coffee. Okay. You make a couple other little stops on the way. Then you drive through an intersection. And just as you drive through, you hear a loud crash behind you. And you realize you just missed being hit by a, a semi-truck whose brakes had just gone out. And you stop your car, and once it's kind of the dust settles and the, the emergency workers get there, you think to yourself, wow, God was really in this moment. He protected me. Now let me ask you the question. Did you make any choices there? I mean, didn't you make a choice to stop at the, the gas station? Didn't you make a, a choice to go that speed? And yet... Wasn't God overseeing the whole thing? It, it wasn't like uh, what seemed to you to be just a, oh, I'm going to stop in and get a cup of coffee. Turned out to be the very thing. If you'd been one or two seconds earlier coming out of that store, you would have been hit by that truck. So again, it doesn't, I think that at least illustrates in part that this tension between those two is not something that we can use to cancel out either side. We can't say, well, you, you didn't make any choices. You were just going through your day, and God had predetermined you know, every step you were going to take. But at the same time, in some sense, he did oversee everything that you did, and he did it for your good. Again, that's not a perfect illustration. But here the text says he chose us in Christ, from the beginning. 
And it's because of his great love. For instance, we read in the Bible that God chose Israel to be his people. And it was apart from their merit. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8 says, The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. So it is with our salvation. We're not chosen because we're pretty good people. We weren't chosen because we had great potential for the Lord. We weren't chosen because uh, there was something in us which was desirable. No, God set his love upon us and chose the weak things of this world. I'm very much in agreement with uh, this statement by Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon once said, I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have chosen me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with a special love. Indeed, that sounds to me like the heart of thankfulness. We're bound to give thanks because not only has he, has he loved us, but he's chosen us. Third, he has set us apart. You notice the word here in verse 13, we have, we're sanctified. He chose you for salvation through sanctification. Now that word oftentimes is used to talk about the, the growing progressively like Jesus. But here, as a lot of places in the New Testament, it has the root idea of being set apart. I don't think he's talking about we, we progressively grow and that's how we were chosen. He's saying we were set apart by the Spirit. It's God's work. And what are, we, what are we to think of this idea of setting apart? Again, I think a little illustration might be helpful. At this time of the year, usually, if, we, if not at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, we would probably make some Oreo truffles. Apparently nobody's had those because there's no reaction here. Oreo truffles is the best way to eat Oreo cookies. You take Oreo cookies, you crush them up, mix cream cheese in. They're coated with this chocolatey coating. Oh, they're delicious. Now, I usually don't make these. Somebody makes them for me. But let's just imagine for the sake of argument, for the sake of illustration, I'm making them this year. And as I'm making these Oreo truffles, I'm making them for our family. But you know what? Since I'm the one making them, I'm going to save back this number of Oreo truffles for myself, my own little personal stash. And I'll keep those hidden away where nobody else can find them. See, in one sense, what I have done there is I have sanctified... My Oreo truffles, I have set them apart. These ones are special. They belong to me. In a sense, that's what God does. He says, these are my people. These are my children. I have set them apart for myself. They belong to me. And in God's eyes, we are much more important than Oreo truffles. But God has set us apart. It says here, by the Spirit or through the Spirit. It's his work. But how does it happen? Again, we have this, this kind of two-sided uh, edge here where you have, yes, it's the Spirit is the one who does the work, who sets us apart. But no one is a follower of Jesus unless they believed on the truth. They've accepted the word of God. They've received that word which was given and delivered to us. Again, there's no one who is 
chosen, who is set apart by the Lord, who doesn't at the same time believe the gospel. Not only are we set apart, we are also called. Look at verse 14. He says, to which you were called, or which he called you, by our gospel. So we're called out. Again, the word call here in the New Testament is a call to salvation. What God had chosen beforehand in Christ is made in time. It is what is potential is now actualized when we are called unto salvation. And this unbroken chain of redemption culminates when we are glorified. You notice that at the end of verse 14. In obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that a reason to thank God this morning? You and I, if you've believed the truth, we have been chosen and called and will experience the glory of heaven. It says here we will obtain. That's, in other words, the way to translate that is sharing in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory that is his in heaven will be in some degree ours. If, if nothing else than to just bask in the glory of Christ. We're going to be glorified with him. The end of your story has been written. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is where it ends. Glorified in heaven, sharing in that glory. Earlier this week, it occurred to me that at the end of Revelation, John has a vision. And in his vision, Jesus is coming on a white horse. And the Bible says he's coming with his saints. I just kind of had this realization this week. You know, if John had really strained his eyes and looked very carefully, I was on one of those horses somewhere. Isn't that weird to think that you're in a biblical prophecy somewhere? But it says he's coming with his saints. I'm one of his saints, and I'll be with him when he comes back. So let me ask, you know, if, if John saw a vision, and again, I'm sure he wasn't looking at the faces of the saints, but if he had and he saw me there, doesn't that indicate that there's a certainty to this? Yeah, I mess up a lot, that's for sure. But if, the, if it's already written that I shall be in heaven in God's glory, then even if I mess up, even though I mess up, I'm not encouraging that, but you are sealed in him, glorified. What a, what a thing to give thanks for. You know, as I think about our thankfulness pumpkin at home, uh, I'm grateful to God for all the things he's given us all those little letter W type requests. But I'm also compelled to give thanks for his love and his grace because he saved me when I was a sinful wretch. Why would God ever love me is a mystery that I will not uncover even through the long ages of eternity, I'm convinced. So the question, I suppose, is have you received that gift? And if you have, if you've trusted on Christ, give thanks. We are obligated to. You are loved and chosen, set apart, called, glorified someday. But that's not the only reason to give thanks. Not only are we compelled to give thanks, the second response is that we are commanded to stand firm. Commanded to stand firm. Take a look at verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Now, the blessings of salvation includes a certain response, a requirement. 
and this is so often the case, by the way, when you read the Bible, doctrine is never for its own sake, but always demands a response from us. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, the doctrine of salvation is played out, as Denny said, in miniature. You have this little two-verse snapshot of all the blessings of salvation. The question is, so what? Or in this case, so then, right? Because he says, therefore, so then, what ought we to do? What's the response to this? Well, first, first of all, it means we should be certain of what we believe. If this is true, then we ought to be certain of it, certain of what we believe. You notice he says, we are, uh, excuse me, therefore, brethren, stand fast. That's the first of two imperatives in the verb. We're commanded to do two things. The first is stand fast or stand firm. This has the idea of having full confidence in all that the Lord has said and promised. This is where we are taking our stand. I believe this, and I shall not be moved. The idea of standing firm certainly has the ring of warfare to it. You know, when the enemy pushes we stand our ground. In fact, a related form of this word appears in Ephesians 6.13, where it says, having done all against the powers of wickedness, stand. It's talking there about spiritual warfare. Now, when I think about standing or standing firm, I think about soldiers who refuse to give ground. Like I think about uh, the Alamo or something like that, where you have this small band of men. They say, you know, this is where we're taking our stand. We're not going to be moved from this place unless they take us out as bodies. And that's exactly what happened at the Alamo. And so it is our stand for the truth that when he says, if this is true, if you're called, if you are sanctified, if you're chosen, if you are loved, then stand fast. And particularly talking about the traditions which we are taught. We'll say more about that in a moment. Stand fast upon what you believe. Hold to it. Uh, what Paul means here is that because we've received this incomparable gift, we should stand firm. Now, we may be confused, and we may be uncertain on many things going on in the world today. But we should never be uncertain about what God has clearly said. Now, other people will waver between what is popular or what they feel but we know what is true in the word of God. And that's where our, our stand must be taken, with confidence. Not in ourselves, but in what God has revealed. We must be confident and certain of what we believe. Uh, the words of this book may not be popular. They may not be accepted. They may, not even, they may even be ridiculed. But we take our stand on what we believe. Centuries ago, Martin Luther stood before the powerful council of the Roman Catholic Church. and You probably know the story. As he was called to recant his beliefs, here's what he famously said. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have often contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I could do no other. So help me God. That's the kind of conviction, the kind of confidence we should have in the word of God. Here's where I stand. This is what I believe. 
not only should we be certain of what we believe, we should also live out what we know. We must live out what we know. Again, I think this is more than just believing something and holding strongly to it. It's also a matter of living it out. You notice he says in verse 15, stand fast and hold the traditions. Now, that sounds like a synonym, you know, stand fast, hold, the same idea of guarding, protecting, um, keeping. But hold really has the idea also of holding to something as in we practice it. And particularly, he mentions here the tradition. That might get you a little bit uh, confused as well because you think, well, in the Bible, wasn't it the tradition of the Pharisees that Jesus was against? What tradition is he talking about here? You know, as well, I guess we're not technically Baptists, but you know, um, there's lots of traditions that get built up in church. Like this is traditionally where I sit on Sunday morning, you know, and. Uh, don't take my seat because this is my spot. You know, tradition has determined that. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something that is passed down. And so the tradition at this time is the tradition passed down, the, the message of Christ and the gospel through the apostles. Now, you might not know this, but the First and Second Thessalonians are two of the earliest books or some of the earliest books in the New Testament. So the, the Thessalonians don't have a book of Romans. They don't have a gospel of John. They don't have Acts. They don't have 1 Peter. They don't have Revelation. All that New Testament truth that we so value and appreciate, they didn't have. What they had was the word of the apostles, the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry. That's why he says, you know, what you have, whether by word or our epistles. So in other words, look in the things that I've written to you, like 1 Thessalonians, for, for instance, but also in what we have shared with you. Hold on to that. And again, let me, let me reiterate this word hold, I think has the idea of not just believing, not just accepting something, but also living it. For instance, if you told me, I hold to biblical Christianity, I assume you are affirming more than just that you believe a few biblical concepts. If you say, I hold to biblical Christianity, but you think that you can live as you please, then you don't really hold to it. You may affirm some of it, but you don't hold to it because you're not living it. I found this quote this week. I thought it was a really great quote, so I wanted to share it with you. It says this, your theology is what you are when the talking stops and the action starts. Let me say it again. Your theology is what you are when the talking stops and the action starts. Again, hold to, stand firm on might sound like affirm some doctrinal positions and away you go. It's more than that. It's theology lived out, practiced. This was a matter of living out the apostles' teaching. If, I, if we believe the gospel, if we are loved and chosen, set apart, and called, does our life reflect that? Are we holding fast to the word of God delivered to us? I think generally we're a lot better about articulating theology than we are practicing it. So stand firm. We are, we are commanded to stand firm. Let me give you a third response, though, quickly. Number three, in light of this salvation that we have, we are also comforted to do good. Comforted to do good. 
Let me just read for us verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work, uh, word and work. So you might notice that the words consolation and comfort are sort of key words there. Uh, this is something of a prayer, a, almost like a benediction that uh, Paul offers at this point. And isn't it true that thanksgiving leads to response and response leads to prayer? That's what happens here. This whole idea comforted to do good. You know, we read in Ephesians 2.10, God's purpose for us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this prayer for the Thessalonians begins with uh, some deliberately Trinitarian language here. Now, we, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, or God and Father. Again, just take notice of this. Verse 16, it says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's not going through a mediator. He's saying, Jesus himself will comfort you. God himself will comfort you. And by the way, he also notes about God as sort of a description. He says, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and hope. So isn't it good to know that the God who comforts us is not one who kind of just glares at us, but he, he understands. He loves us. He shows compassion upon creatures like us. Uh, it'd be hard to be comforted by someone who is totally aloof, who is... Uh, not willing to understand your hardship, your hurt. Now, nevertheless, he says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God and Father who has loved us, given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. Here's the, here's the main idea of the request, the prayer. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. That's what, that's what he wants God to do for the Thessalonians, to comfort them. Now, again, let me bring up the context. He's just talked about this raging antichrist who in the last days is going to wreak havoc over the world he's going to deceive people and people are going to follow him to their own destruction it's pretty alarming stuff it's pretty uh jarring stuff and yet he says may god comfort your hearts be at peace even though your mind may be racked with worry about what's going on or what is coming May God comfort you. And maybe that's what you need a little bit of this morning. There's a whole lot of things to be worried about in our world today. And maybe, maybe you feel that pressure. Maybe you feel the pressure that comes to you through the news because, man, it's bad out there. There's a lot of stuff that we just shake our head at. And maybe, maybe you've decided, well, I'm just going to shut off the news. I don't, I don't need all that negativity in my life. But there's still things that happen, whether it's personal conversations, issues that pop up in your family, whatever. There's a lot of things to be concerned about, to be worked up about. Uh, I, I would imagine that we're probably, some of us at least, are losing sleep over some of these alarming things. He says, in light of all of that kind of foreboding warning of 2 Thessalonians 2, God will comfort your hearts and establish you. 
maybe we need to be comforted this morning. Comforted in this fact that God has chosen us, that we are his, that we belong to him. Again, we're giving thanks for the greatest gift this morning, his salvation, which itself is a comfort. Not only that, he says, he will establish you. Because here's the truth. Sometimes comfort or encouragement is not enough, right? We need to be strengthened in order to do and say what is right. Well, that too is promised to us here. Comfort their hearts and establish you. So strengthen you in every good work, word and work. And those two ideas together, word and work, kind of captures everything you're going to do. Whether it's the words you say or the things you do, kind of the whole of life, it also kind of indicates the small things as well as the big things. God will strengthen you to do what you ought to do should we seek it from him. May God, may our Lord Christ comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. At our house, as we continue to fill up our thankfulness pumpkin, uh, we praise God for all of his gifts. But the greatest gift I could receive was given to me in Christ. And that gives me a reason to be thankful this year. And my prayer is that as we fill up that pumpkin at home, that our three kids will come to know Jesus as their Savior, that they'll experience this gift for themselves. There's nothing greater I could wish for them than to know Christ as their Savior. I want to close this morning with a story, a story which illustrates this gift, the greatness of salvation. And, I mean, how many stories could be chosen to depict this? There's innumerable and we ought to thank God and rejoice in his salvation. But again, I, I picked one and just, just to help our hearts realize what a great gift this is to be called, to be chosen, to be his. The story concerns Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, the brother of John Wesley, the evangelist. And Charles Wesley was, in his own right, a, a good preacher as well. And in 1738, Charles Wesley was preaching the gospel to prisoners in London's notorious Newgate prison. One day, he was there sharing the gospel, and he met an African slave who was in prison scheduled to be hanged because he had stolen some items from his master. Cruel punishment, no doubt, but Charles began to share with him about the gospel. It was the first time this this slave had ever heard the truth about Jesus. He was absolutely captivated as Wesley told him about the cross and about God's punishment that was poured out on Jesus instead of us. And that a person, if they place their faith in Christ, can be a new creation. The tears began to stream down this man's face as he listened and he asked Charles Wesley, what, he said, was it for me? Did God suffer all this for so poor a creature as me? Wesley affirmed, yes, he did. And he led the man to faith in Christ. However, the sentence could not be changed. The following week, he was scheduled to be hanged. On the way to the gallows, with full assurance of everlasting life, Charles prayed and sang hymns with this man. Charles Wesley noted in his diary, we were all cheerful, full of comfort, peace, and triumph. They gave thanks that day for the greatest gift ever received. And on that day, the African slave entered into paradise 
And Wesley wrote in his diary, that hour under the gallows was the most blessed hour in my life. Indeed, to see a person come to know Christ as Savior, to experience that salvation, it is the greatest gift. Let's give thanks for it.